Our gospel this morning comes from the eighth chapter of St. Luke. Jesus and his disciples arrived at the land of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now, on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herders saw what had happened, they ran off and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see, and when they came to see Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then they asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned to Galilee. But the man The man from whom the demons had gone, he begged that he might go with Jesus, but Jesus sent the man away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'd like to tell you um, about about a dog named Slick. <laughs> dog <laughs> Slick was our dog in Virginia, where we lived a long time ago. We moved here in 2009, and, and Slick was with us, oh gosh, Krista, how long? 15 years or something? 13, 15 years or something. Anyway, Slick was a beautiful, gorgeous, brown-haired Boykin Spaniel. Ever heard of a Boykin Spaniel? They're raised to be hunting dogs, bird dogs. Um, and they have, anytime you see a boy can spain, the most magnetic eyes that you've ever seen. They're raised in, in uh, Camden, South Carolina, as I recall, in a tiny little community called Boykin. But in any case, um, fun, fast, strong, enormous chest, large jaws framed by bushy ears. He was loyal, fun, turned heads wherever he met. Well, until the 4th of July, one 4th of July, and well, Slick turned into a demon-possessed dog. It was like overnight, no lie. I've never seen an animal react so negatively and so destructively. Now, we didn't get Slick till he was about two or two and a half years of age, so we didn't know anything about it. All he was to us was, you know, the gift of some man who didn't know us, by the way, and thought he, well, we thought he assumed that, you know, this is a nice young family. They need a dog, so he's given us a dog. Well, little do we know what's the rest of the story. 
story behind this dog, nevertheless. Uh, from then on, whenever there was thunder or any kind of loud noise, he could literally eat his way out of a metal crate, no lie. He would pull himself over a six-foot privacy fence. He'd dig out of a yard before you knew what was, was happening. Those beautiful eyes turned into the wide-eyed look of a demon-possessed dog. I've never seen anything like it. Sadly, though, our story, our family story about Slick is all about the bad times, like when he ate through the wall of our living room or was found in the parking garage of a hospital three miles away. We don't remember the rest of his story. Enter a man from the town of Gergasa along the eastern slope of the Sea of Galilee. The Bible talks about him as being possessed by demons, but today I'd like to uncover the rest of his story. And I'd love for you to open up, if you would, in your Bibles or in your bulletins, because we're going to walk through some details of the story. It'll be helpful for you to have uh, portions of the story with you for you to follow along as well. By the way, whenever I look at Scripture, um, especially if it's a story like this one in Scripture, I'd like to begin by asking at least two questions. One is, who are the actors that are involved in this particular story? And then, what do I know about the characters based on what the story is telling me, not based on the assumptions I bring or the judgments I bring to the story, but what, do we, what does the Scripture tell us in the story about these characters. Well, in this case, of course, there are two lead characters, Jesus and this demon-possessed man. We know a little bit about Jesus by now, uh, but, I, but we'd like to learn what we can about this man, right? So, what does the story tell us about, about him? Well, unfortunately, very little. But what we do know is very, very interesting. So let's walk through it together, if you don't mind. Verse 27, take a look. We learn that he's from the region of the Gerasenes, which means, by the way, that he's likely, he likely lived in the town of Gergasa, which is just across the border um, from Galilee. Galilee was one of the land of the Jews, part of the kingdom of Herod, the Galilee, Judea, across the border. So not in Galilee, but in, in Gergasa, the land of the Gerasenes. Uh, two, he had demons. We call him demon-possessed. But of course, as you know, I'm sure, that that could represent a broad category of possibilities. He could literally be possessed by demons. That's absolutely a very strong possibility. Or since he lived in a, in a time when very little, if anything at all, was known about mental illness, he could have had any number of mental health disorders. Could have been schizophrenia, uh, could have been delusional disorder, he could have suffered from hallucinations, severe hallucinations, or some psychosis of one kind or another. Any of those disorders could cause someone to act in an erratic way like this, similar to the way that this man was reacting. Or, and this is more recent psychology, interesting nevertheless, we're beginning to learn that this kind of behavior can be the result of delayed trauma, severe trauma uh, of one kind or another that had built up over time, perhaps something like severe abuse or neglect or, or violence of severe violence of one kind or another. Uh, Rezma Menachem has written a brilliant book on how trauma affects um, not just our minds, but also our bodies. It's a book called My Grandmother's Hands. He, he writes that severe trauma that is not dealt with can result later in life in our bodies reacting in ways that we never imagined and sometimes are uncontrollable, oftentimes uncontrollable ways, especially in the way it affects our vagus nerve or what psychologists call our soul nerve. So is this man, man's reactions the result of delayed trauma? 
Who knows? I mean, we really don't know, but a possibility. What else do we know about him? Still, we're still in verse 27. He didn't wear any clothes, right? And he lived in the tombs. That seems obvious, very clear, very explicit, which means that he didn't live in the village uh, because the tombs, cemeteries were never inside the village, never within the village walls, but always outside. So, so he's been removed from the community for some reason or another. Nobody would live in the, in the cemetery, in the tombs by themselves, or at least on their own. He has been um, uh, removed from the community, from the, from the boundaries, perhaps the wall of that community. Uh, who knows why or for what reason? We don't know, but, but the reality is he's now marginalized, he's removed, he's set aside, he's dismissed, he's pushed to the edge so that no one will have to deal with him. Or maybe he's chosen to live there by himself, possibly. Uh, that's certainly a strong possibility. We don't know. All we know is that he lived alone, quote, in the tombs. Follow me. Furthermore, he was naked. Or if he was in South Gergasa, he was naked, right? <laughs> I remember coming home, visual, I, I don't know why, but coming home from work one day and our two-year-old Matthew was vacuuming the floor wearing only his boots and his birthday suit. It's an image you just cannot get out of your mind. Except in this case, it's not funny, right? It's, uh, in those days, no one dared to show themselves naked in public. You would never do that. You'd be shamed and your family would be shamed. So this is when my imagination just starts to kick in. What's really going on here? Is he just naked? Possibly, who knows? Or is there some sub-theme that's going on? Because when you're naked, you're fully exposed, right? Obvious. But you're also extremely vulnerable, entirely vulnerable. You can't hide anything when you're naked, so, so maybe there's a sub-theme that says this man, this lonely, this conflicted man uh, wanted to be exposed. Maybe he even deep down needed to be exposed. Maybe he was begging for folks to, to know more about him, to learn more about him, to understand more about him, to, to not make assumptions or, or judgments about him, and to not look um, about him with, with you know, an odd sense of, of who he may or may not be, but to look more carefully at who he really was, to listen more carefully to the rest of his story. I mean, we all need that, right? I need that. You need that. We yearn for that kind of thing. No one likes to walk through life being misunderstood. And yet, sadly, uh, there are so many folks walking through life who are entirely misunderstood. But here's the thing, and an, an important part of Christian discipleship is to walk alongside the other. Sometimes that's hard. I, I get it, especially in extreme situations like these, and yet the call is the same. Why? Because God makes clear throughout Scripture, therein the gospel will be revealed. Therein the gospel will be revealed. Let's keep digging. Verse 28 now. When Jesus shows up, the man falls on his knees and he yells out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, now at one level, that sounds beautiful, right? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that there's going to come a time when at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bend, and I cannot wait for that moment. It'll be a beautiful, glorious moment when all will bow at the name of Jesus. Is this that moment? Or is he being less than serious? Is he being cynical, maybe, even? Is it possible that he's 
maybe even mocking Jesus. I mean, we don't know, except that clearly he had heard uh, about Jesus prior to this encounter. I mean, how else could he have called him by name? He knew the name of Jesus, and he knew that Jesus represented religious authority, and, and there's no doubt that this man knew, man knew something about re- religious authority. Again, follow, follow me here. Uh, you see, the city of Gergasa, it, it wasn't a Jewish territory, but it was populated mostly by Jews, and the Jewish leaders had significant influence there. And in fact, they would have been the only ones the only ones who could, who could have forced him to be removed from the community, to toss him out of the community because he was demon-possessed. The Romans, if it was just up to them, they, they would have just locked him up in jail. They're not going to mess around with that. They don't care. But the Jews, they believe that, that people like that should be removed from community altogether. Why? Because uh, you are to remove the sin. And demon possession in those days was, uh, was always assumed to be the result of, a, of sinful behavior. So, so what we have is a man who has been tormented by the religious system, claimed as unworthy, not good enough, uh, without value. And I don't care who you are, that hurts, right? When an entire community, when an entire system claims you as unworthy, without value, that hurts. You know that, right? Because too many people today have felt the same sting of hurt from from the church or from religious community or people in religious authority, even far too many people have, have been claimed to feel at least deep in their own feelings as unworthy, not good enough, not welcome, that their stories aren't being heard or believed. It hurts, not just cognitively, but viscerally. In your, in your body, it hurts. But he's also felt the sting of the political community. I mean, how do we know that? Because only civil authorities could have placed chains on his body. No one else could do that. His family could not do that. The community couldn't, the church or the the Jewish community could not have. Only civil authority could literally put chains on his wrists and on his ankles. And look at verse 29. It says, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and with shackles. There may have been good reason. Who knows? I don't know. But still, what we're told is that later on, he he would break those shackles. But you know that if, if chains have been on his wrist and he's been pulling and tugging, you know what that's doing. It's breaking this skin, it's causing bruising, it's leaving scars behind. So, so here's a man who, who, who is now loaded down with scars around his wrists, around his ankles, who knows where else, physical scars, but you know also they're emotional scars, right? Reminders that the political system, reminders that the religious system of his community had failed him. How do I know? Because he still lived in the tombs with scars around his wrists and ankles, the tortured effects of a community that had not figured out how to deal with him, except to ostracize him, except to marginalize him, except to complain about him. Kristen was a teenager who lived, who loved her church very much, but began to feel that her church did not love her. She had spent her entire life in Sunday school and children's choirs looking forward to VBS, to youth retreats and lock-ins, to those crazy water games. But Kristen also heard the language of her church that criticized anyone outside of a heterosexual relationship. 
And when she began to discover that that kind of relationship did not make sense to her, well, she began to feel excluded and marginalized, left out. For so long she was hidden, for way too long, hidden in her own thoughts about herself. Now, she still loved the church very much, deeply, but she felt deeply that the church no longer loved her. So when this man yells out, what have you to do with me, Jesus? I can only imagine the anguish of all those who have felt at one level or, or another marginalized, those who are filled with emotional scars, who yell out with the same cry, what have you to do with me, Lord? Now, we come to the part of the story where we have to respond, right? Because Christian faith always moves us in that direction, and the stories of faith, the stories of Scripture always move us into a a place where we are called to respond, and Christian faith calls us to active engagement with this world, especially the challenges of this world, and this presents some serious challenges, right? So, since we're human, admittedly, this is true of me, maybe it's true of you, we're often, often our responses are based on a, a set of assumptions or a set of judgments. We quickly create our own narrative about what's going on. We, we say that this man has to bear some, person, some personal responsibility for his, his situation, and some of that may or may not be accurate. Who knows entirely? But, but really, before, before we jump too quickly in our own sort of response, let's take a, at the very least, take a closer look at, at Jesus' response. Because the first thing that we notice is that Jesus responds not with judgment, but with power, the power of grace and love. Verse 33, look what he does. He frees this man of his demons and casts them into a herd of pigs. I mean, he saw that, right? It's a bizarre part of the story. And then these pigs, they rush into the Sea of Galilee to their death. Dramatic conclusion. But it begs the question, and I promise you, I'm so close to being finished. Why is there a swine herd among the Jews? I mean, if you know anything about the Jews, they're not allowed to eat pork, right? I mean, we know that. It's illegal in Jewish law, forbidden. No one could eat pork, much less raise pigs. So where did the swine herd come from? But here's the thing. Ergasa is not in Jewish territory. It's not in Judea. It's not in Galilee. It's just over the line. It's sort of like south of the border. It's just over the line from North Carolina. Where do you buy the best fireworks? South of the border, right? You can't buy the stuff in North Carolina that you can buy at south of the border. All the good stuff is, at, is over the border. Gergasa operated in the same way. It was its own city-state protected by the Roman army, but permitted to have its own rules. So, officially, raising pigs in this Jewish-populated community was legal in Gergasa, but make no mistake about it, it was illicit, an illicit, highly profitable industry that Jesus literally destroyed by casting the demons into the swine, into the sea. Why? Because the power and grace and love and might and purpose of God is willing to destroy whatever system needs to be destroyed in order to save even one precious child of God, even one. It doesn't matter how popular, it doesn't matter how how profitable that system or that industry might be in the purpose and in the kingdom of God, even that will be destroyed 
for the sake of one of God's precious ones. What an amazing God we serve. Except at the end of the story, we are told that after seeing these swine thrown into the sea, the people of Gaza, how do they respond? They're afraid. And more than that, they gather around and they ask Jesus to leave, which is so sad, isn't it? I mean, this man has just been healed. He's just been given new life. He's no longer chained. He's, he's no longer living in the tombs. He's free. But the people of Gergasa valued their swine more than they valued this single human. They valued this illicit industry more than the life of their brother. How will you respond? How will you respond? By the way, as I step down from this pulpit, I want you to notice one little, tiny little thing. Did you notice how the story ends? It's odd. I mean, the man, the freed man, begs Jesus to now let him tag along. And he says, Jesus, let me follow you. I want to follow you wherever you go. Please, let me go with you. And, well, look, we, I, if I ever hear that of, of youth or young adults or people, you know, as you're in your journey, you had a mountaintop experience, you say, oh, my gosh, all I want to do now is follow Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, a, that, that's a time to throw up your hands and say, hallelujah, thanks be to God, right? But Jesus says, no, that's odd. Seems so strange. No, Jesus says. Why? Because he wants this man to go home and to tell his story because they need to hear it. What we don't know is whether they listen. It's a part of the story that is not told. So perhaps that's where we enter in. Maybe so. As this man returns to his commun community, to his home, maybe he is returning to us. Will we make room to listen to the stories of those on the margins? Is it possible that within their story lies the good news? Amen.